Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we offer our time and ourselves to you this evening. We trust that you are here in our midst and that your word will be spoken, that my words would be yours and all of our thoughts would be your thoughts. We ask all of this in your holy son's name. Amen. I've been thinking about a simple phrase this week, one that we've all heard uh, hundreds and hundreds of times, that God is love. Perhaps you've heard someone say this, you've probably said it yourself. It's one of the most pervasive ways, both in the Christian church and without, that God is described, that God is love. And of course, it's perfectly true. The Apostle John says so twice in his first letter. Uh, He says, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then just a few verses later, he says, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And this sounds like a wonderful sentiment that God is love. Who wouldn't be behind that assertion that God is love? But even as John is calling God love, he seems to be casting a little bit of doubt into the equation. He says that God abides in those who abide in love. So sure, God is love. But are there conditions attached? What exactly does that mean? Do you have to be abiding in love for God to be love to you? So it seems like the simple phrase, God is love, actually leads almost immediately to a question. Does God is love mean that God is loving? Those, to me, are two different things. It's, it's one thing that God might be love, but does he act in a loving way? And is God loving is a very compelling question. Philosophers have been asking this question for generations. As soon as people started thinking about God, they've been wondering if God could be loving. They look out the window at the world as it is today and wonder if a loving God could have anything to do with how life actually is. This world seemingly so bereft of love, full of hate and anger and pestilence and pain, we wonder if a loving God could be in charge of this. Maybe God is love, but is he loving? And actually, though, is God loving isn't the most compelling question. It's a compelling one, but it's not personal enough. The most compelling question is, does God love me? Does God love me? That's our real question. Or maybe it's, could God love me? We often fear that God could not love us because we fear that he knows us too well. We are all too well aware of the masks and facades that we put on, that we show the other people in our lives, and we suspect that God can see right through that stuff, down to the heart of who we really are, on the inside. 
the animosities, the jealousies, the self-centeredness, the sin, all of it. The Lord says so himself when he's talking to Samuel about how he will recognize the next king of Israel. He says, you people look on the outside, but I look on the heart. And we, those of us who are any kind of honest with ourselves, we recognize that as really bad news, that God actually sees our hearts. Oh no, one of our greatest shared fears is that if some other person really knew the truth about us, they wouldn't want anything to do with us ever again. If somebody found out what was really going on in our hearts, they'd run screaming for the hills. This is why, as Chris Rock so astutely noted, we don't introduce people to ourselves, we introduce them to our representative. The version of us that we wish we were is who we introduce to other people. And if we feel that way about other people, it only stands to reason that we're even more afraid of what God might think. God, who knows every single thing. So we're not sure if God could love us. And it is into this fear, a fear expressed by a criminal justly condemned to death, that Jesus speaks on Good Friday. As you know, Jesus is crucified alongside two thieves, one on his right, one on his left, the first of which mocks him. Are you not the Christ, he says? Save yourself and us. The second thief, though, recognizes Jesus for who he is. And he rebukes that first thief and he says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This condemned man is saying to Jesus, you know me, you know what I've done. I'm hanging here beside you and I deserve every nail. Can you remember me? Can you love me? Could you even love someone like me? He might as well be saying, is God really love? Can it really be true? And Jesus has a ready answer for him. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, I can't hear that sentence without the hairs on the back of my neck standing up. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Literally, every time I hear it, and I've heard it several hundred times in my life now, I get shivers. What authority Jesus has, what power to say to a man justly accused and sentenced to death, today is the day you begin to celebrate eternally with me. Your party starts today. This sentence is good news to you and me, too. 
We may not join Jesus in paradise today, but his promise is as true for us now as it was for that thief on that cross 2,000 years ago. We are justly accused. We confess week by week that we have not loved God with our whole heart, that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We deserve the punishment that Jesus got, a guilty verdict, a jeering crowd, a long, painful walk, bearing the means of our execution, hard wood, fibrous rope, nails. And tonight, it all comes to a head. Tonight, we feel as though we are down to our last breath. If we could save ourselves, we would. If we could do anything, we would. It's a Friday evening in April, and we've come to the end of our rope. We know now that there's nothing we can trade for an exoneration. No argument we can make that the judge will accept. We would have done anything to avoid this. And yet here we are. No good work, no community service, no promises of improved future behavior will change anything now. Now all we can do is sit and rehearse in our minds just like that thief must have been doing all the mistakes, all the sins, all the bad decisions and selfish ambitions that led us to this point, this place, this awful place of desolation, of anguish and fear. But here we are. The verdict has been read. No pardon is coming. It's time. All we have left, our only hope in the whole world, is this poor, ragged man. This man who just last night was telling his disciples that his body would be broken for the sins of the world, that his blood would be spilled for the sins of the world. He was talking to them, but maybe, just maybe he might mean our sins too. And so we choke out those words with our last breath. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And without a moment's hesitation, he looks over at you, you of all people, the you that you're terrified to share with anyone. And he says, I know you, the real you. I love you. I'm dying for you. I take your sin onto my shoulders now and make a gift to you of my righteousness, my goodness, my life for yours. That's happening right now. Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. As we acknowledged at the beginning of the service, all we like sheep 
have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And yet, there is good news. There is gospel. There is even rejoicing today. Even today. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Today, we are with him in paradise. Amen.